Hi and welcome to the Demand Matrix podcast series Sunny Side Up. I'm Paroma. I'll be your host for the day. Hi Jeremy, welcome to Demand Matrix podcast Sunny Side Up. We're so happy to have you here today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Paroma. Great. So let's tell the audience a little bit about yourself and of course about some of your past work experiences and definitely also about your books. Oh, sure. I'll just be super brief. So I was an engineer at the beginning of my career in the semiconductor industry. And then over the course of the past 25 years, I've worked my way through all kinds of different jobs in product management, product development, product marketing, and then ultimately uh, marketing. And now I work for SalesLoft as the head of a couple of different teams here. Uh, We're a sales engagement platform, so we help people with software to manage their workflow, particularly when they're prospecting to try to get meetings with customers. And then here I I run a few teams. So I run our sales development team. I run our sales engineering team. And then I have uh, bits bits and pieces of jobs that are tied to sales strategy, which we can get into as Mm -hmm. we go through this. Great. So what's a typical day at work like for you at SalesLoft? My days are highly varied. So yesterday I was up in Toronto. We were having a, sponsoring a Modern Sales Pros event, which is a, a great online and offline forum. So I'll, I'll get involved in, in those sorts of field marketing activities. And then, you know, as a, since I have a, managed a couple of teams, certainly a lot of my days are filled with one-on-ones where I do get to do deep work, which is what I really do. I mean, I obviously enjoy the one-on-one part of it as well. But when I get to do deep work, I'm often doing very analytical things. So mm-hmm. I, particularly with that kind of engineering and computer science and statistics background, things, for example, like designing a new territory model or coming up with a new comp plan, those sorts of things. So my day has a lot of variety in, in either interacting with other people or heads down. And what I refer to using a term that one of my favorite authors uses often is deep work. I have these deep work periods where I'll, I'll try to tackle a complex analytical project. Great. That sounds really interesting. And uh, so let's get into your thoughts on the top trends that you're currently seeing in B2B sales and technology sales. Yeah, I think a lot of people probably talk about the same trends and because or they use new language for the same trends. But some of these things obviously have been around for for a long time. I mean, things like Omnichannel, for example, have been around forever using everything you can, direct mail, phone, email, social. So, I mean, that trend is definitely still there, but I wouldn't say it's new. There are other, you know, other similar trends like personalization that we're obviously very big on here at SalesLoft, which I wouldn't say is new. I think one of the more interesting and truly newer things is the way that machine learning and predictive intelligence have been evolving. You know, that topic got a little bit of a bad reputation in market. Well, it started really in marketing, but also in sales that I think a lot of the technologies that were designed to help people with predictive intelligence or predictive analytics really didn't pay off. And I think it's probably two reasons for that. One is those models are only as good as the data that comes in, right? It's garbage in, garbage out. And unfortunately, so many people or so many organizations don't really have super clean sales force or CRM data, whatever CRM they're using, don't have super clean CRM data, not just at the contact level or the lead level, but also especially at the activity level. And then even ops, right, that get start, that get created just before a deal closes. So you can only really use those tools if the data is good. But then, you know, even if the data is good, the truth of statistical modeling and social science is that you typically can't predict much more. I think being able to predict about 25% of the variation in something is considered to be exceptionally strong in the world of social science. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you still got three quarters of the variation in outcomes unpredictable. 
And if you think that a, a predictive analytics thing is going to be the holy grail, uh, you know, you would be defying a century or more of analysis on social science. But my long-winded way of getting to a trend here is though, although I think being able to pick necessarily the contacts or the accounts that are likely to be the most fruitful is mm-hmm. will remain elusive. I think the one trend that's getting super interesting is that companies are starting to recommend basically the next best action to salespeople. So think of it as almost like a machine intelligent assist for first line sales managers that alerts mm-hmm. them that they need to coach their reps on particular behaviors. And there's a few companies out there that are going after that. I think that's a pretty killer trend. There are obviously some big challenges when you see all this technology evolve and enable sales and their teams. So what are the lags that you see people face in this segment? And what are the challenges that you're seeing them face when it comes to using sales technologies? Yeah, having had a strategy background, I was trained by, I did not work for McKinsey Consulting, but I was I worked for former McKinsey consultants for about a decade. And there I learned a pretty basic and universal framework for how you think about about change and strategy. And I think it applies very much to B2B sales teams, which is any sort of change or behavioral adherence requires three things. It's people, process, and technology. And I think the technology thing, you know, if you look at any one of those those grids, right, that have uh, market maps or landscapes, like a sales tech landscape sort of a thing, there's hundreds of companies in there. I mean, you can literally find a a point solution or a, a holistic solution to do anything. Like you guys have great data on technographics and I can find, you know, other data on all kinds of other things, right? I mean, there's endless sources of data. Mm-hmm. There's endless tools that will help me do different aspects of the sales process. So I don't think we have a technology problem. If anything, we have an embarrassment of riches in technology. Where I do think we have issues, obviously, is on the people and process. I do see as I interact with you know, customers and prospects, a real high degree of variation on process adherence. I was at last night in Toronto. That was one of the topics of discussion was basically, you know, a company had come up with a, a new sales process. And the biggest thing that they wrestled were, were wrestling with was making sure that their individual reps were adhering to the process. And they were putting in place all kinds of different things, you know, to make sure that that was happening. I think one of the more clever things that they mentioned was that, they had codified many elements of the process into their CRM. And what happened is as you completed different aspects of the process, which obviously required some kind of action on the part of your customers or prospects, that unlocked new resources for you. So to make that less abstract, you know, you might have to have you know, had a certain amount of progress in the sales cycle in order, for example, to unlock the ability to do a proof of concept or a trial. That You couldn't mm-hmm. just do that off the bat that a bunch of criteria had to be met in the system. So those were the sorts of things that I think are the challenge, right? Is getting the people to adhere to the process, assuming the process is defined to begin with. That's pretty interesting though. But when it comes to the most used channels for B2B salespeople, what are you seeing as a big channel or the most popular ones? And is email, according to you, still a major trend? Where do you see this go in the future? I mean, obviously, the usual suspects here, right? So it's email and phone, I think, remain the dominant channels. Social is increasing, although people are realizing that there's probably a right way to engage and use social and many, many wrong ways. Texting seems to be gaining momentum. I saw an article or some research on LinkedIn that someone posted on LinkedIn earlier today about the, you know, sort of the willingness of of millennials to be permissive about getting text messages. 
So that's obviously there. And then you continue to hear since direct mail died a few years ago in many ways, not completely, but in many ways. Now it's a differentiating it's sort of thing. Mail. Yeah. So you see, yeah. you see more direct mail. Email specifically, I think, yeah, there it's, it's continues to be a highly effective medium of communication. One thing we did find, we have the luxury of seeing literally hundreds of millions of probably over a billion interactions between our customers and their prospects, phone, email, social touches, direct mail, and so on. And one thing that we found is that the one bad thing you can do is Mm -hmm. to be single channel. If you're email only, for example, your response rate drops by about 77%. Or if your phone only, your engagement campaigns drops about 91%. So the key is not like it's one channel. The key is definitely is definitely multi-channel, at, at least mm-hmm. email and phone, and possibly including social as well. So then what are some of the ways salespeople can implement innovation to these tactics using these channels? Yeah, well, I mean, I can tell you how we do it. Obviously, different strokes for different folks. I come from the marketing world, and, and in the marketing world, obviously, we were A-B testing everything. I think that philosophy of A-B testing has also come into the sales world. And then I also think about A-B testing in sort of two ways. One is, is I'll call it the prospective A-B test, which is you, you design the experiment, you execute it, you see what wins. I kind of like the, I'll, I'm going to refer to it as a retrospective A-B test, which is, you know, you have a hypothesis that something is effective and then you, then you go look in, in, in data, right? You're basically doing a big data exercise to test that hypothesis. Many people would not necessarily call that A-B testing, but I like to refer to that as retrospective A-B testing because it allows you to test something on data that you otherwise would set up an A-B test on. So to make the abstract concrete there, you know, we had a hypothesis about email subject lines and we were wondering what is the ideal length of an email subject line? And so we we were able to go into hundreds of millions of emails and look, okay, here's the reply rate to zero word, one word, two word, three word, four word subject lines, and then discovered that the one word subject line by far has the best response rate. It's uh, 87% above the average of reply rates when you use a one word subject line. And what were these words? So that's the double click is, you know, first we found that, then we went and looked at what the words were. And it turns out that the most common best word, and it just, it obviously varies based on the context of the email you're sending out, but the most common best word for prospecting was in fact, your company name, you know, so like, you know, you guys might use demand matrix in your emails, we'll use sales loft, but yeah, your own company name is is a great one word subject line. The other great one word subject line, or there are plenty of them is to be very direct, to just say meeting, the word meeting mm-hmm. in your subject line, that also gets a good response rate. That's wonderful information because uh, that, I think that's something everyone struggles with. So thank you for that. And since you dip into all of this emails and all of these emails on prospecting, it would be great if you tell us about some email marketing best practices. Yeah, we've so we've looked at many and we've broken them down into into a few different things. If you just think about an email, right? There's things like when you send them, there's things like the subject line, which we just talked about, the greeting, the body, and then the signature and beyond. So we, we broke them down into those things. So maybe I'll, is it okay if I give you one tip on each of those? Yes, that would be yeah, amazing. Yeah. Perfect. All right. So the, let's start with, um, there's so many things about in each of them, but I guess one of my favorites in when to send them is to make sure that if you're executing a multi-touch campaign, that you just make sure you space out your touches 
with increasing spacing. So, you know, we looked at, again, hundreds of millions of emails and found that if you send an email like on day one, day three, day five, where there's a regular pattern to the emails, they get a lower response rate than if you send, for example, an email on day one, then two, so you added a day, then add two days, so day four, then add three days, so day seven, then add four days, so day 11, right? So you're basically giving some breathing room And that Mm -hmm. breathing room helps pretty dramatically increase the response rate to multi-touch campaigns. So that's one of many uh, email-related tips about kind of when to send them. The subject line we talked about, those one-word subject lines are fantastic. The other interesting one is the single best thing that we saw in a subject line is when you use the word referred. Obviously, it's not because the subject line contains the word referred. It's because the salesperson took the time to actually get a referral. Then going on to greetings, we looked at whether just using one word versus using two words made a difference. So the example there would be just Paroma alone or hi or hey or hello Paroma. So Mm -hmm. we found that two words is better than one. And in particular, hey Paroma, so the actual word hey as opposed to hi or hello, ends up with the emails with the highest response rate. In the body, so many tips. I guess the best tip there is... Basically, don't exceed 100 words in your email body. The sweet spot is between 26 and 50 words, which is a pretty tight email. But And you're, you're, pretty, you're fine relative to average reply rates until you exceed 100 words. And at that point, your response rates tend to fall off the cliff. So keep those emails under 100 words. And then in the signature, the last tip I'll give you, unless you want to dig into more, is we looked at ways people sign off on their emails. So do they use best or cheers or sincerely or thanks or regards? I think you sent me on uh, have a good day. So there's all kinds of different ways people can do that. We found that best and cheers have the highest response rates. Another one is please advise. So if you have an ask in your email, you know, rather than best or cheers, which are, which are very good, try please advise that has very, very good response rates. Interesting. So that's what we're going to do the next time around. (laughs) Yeah, perfect. (laughs) Let's talk about an age-old struggle between sales and marketing. There's always been friction between the two. What do you do at Sales Loft to deal with this? Yeah, um, I am now on the sales side. I have been on on the marketing side in the past, and I have also been a CRO, so I had both sales and marketing. So I think I've experienced all of them in different instances. I think the answer is a pretty simple one, right, which is um, maybe two pieces, uh, the constant communication that we you know we make sure that our marketing team and our sales team have reasons to interact with high frequency at that event I was at last night it was there with actually one of our sales engineers was there I was there our field marketing person was there and then our person who's in charge of territory management was there so we kind of had a, a great mix of holistically revenue ops people so the communication is one piece and I think the other that constant communication is one piece. Then the other thing is just to make sure that you're aligned on you know both your KPIs and and whatever critical initiatives you have. So a really good example of this at Salesloft is that we have, like most companies, segmented our account universe into we have tier one, tier two, tier three, and then effectively the the untiered. And we make sure that marketing and sales have collectively aligned on what the accounts are that are in each one of those tiers so that marketing can then go off and execute programs to build visibility in each one of those tiers. And obviously they're going to spend the most money and and have the most comprehensive programs on the tier one accounts and progressively on down from there. So that alignment on which account, since we're 
account-based, that alignment on which accounts are going to get the most attention, that's critical. That helps a lot. Right. So obviously, ABM is a core strategy for you at Salesloft. Definitely. So what are your comments on account-based marketing? Where, where do you see this grow to in the coming years? And uh, what have been your thoughts and observations when teams have run their ABM strategies? Yeah, ABM is so broad, right? For me, ABM is a little bit about that alignment I just talked about. So, you know, with those mm-hmm. tier one accounts, you're really going to do that ultimate high touch campaigns, right? So think about all the facets that could be involved if you're going to do search engine marketing, you know, from digital to analog. But if you're going to do search engine marketing, right, you're going to maybe differentially target ads towards those companies that you want to go after, leverage retargeting and so on. If you're going to you know, you might have direct mail campaigns with them. You might offer to come in and run, you know, benchmarks or training sessions or something high value add on site for those really, really top prospects. I mean, there's amazing things that you can do, right? If you're coordinated in your campaign for those big accounts and then on down, right? As you progress to smaller accounts, you're going to leverage less of that costly like one-to-one personal stuff. Yeah, and you'll you'll do more digital marketing there. So it really obviously varies, but I think that segmentation, identification of the accounts, scoring them, and and by the way, that's something that's important that we do, which is we have a a quite sophisticated predictive model that scores accounts where we do use stuff like what you guys do. We use, you know, we use technographic data and we use the usual suspect stuff of industry size, geo, and a bunch of other factors. So we have about 10 factors in our model that we use in order to score accounts to identify which are the best ones to go after. Great. So do you want to talk about some of the most successful sales campaigns you've run at Salesloft and uh, some of the most marketing campaigns before that? Oh, goodness. Yeah. Um, even outside of Salesloft, like some of my favorite marketing campaigns that I've seen are, are things where the vendor is able to provide something of real value, right? Like they're not just asking for a meeting and you know in that meeting they're going to ask discovery questions and then do a demo, like something where they're giving real value. And and one example of that that I really loved historically was what HubSpot did with their marketing grader. I know, Mm -hmm. uh, I I presume that still exists. I think it was like grader.hubspot.com or something like that. And there you could go in and put in your website And it would basically run through your website and figure out how you could optimize it in a bunch of different ways. And like, yes, that's lead gen for HubSpot. But even if you don't use HubSpot, you got a tremendous amount of value out of that. And that's a good example of, of I think, of an incredible campaign that I ran into that I think delivered value in a way that was real. That's a very clever one because once they've developed that, the zero variable cost for them to generate new leads based on that. There are higher touch things people have done for me. For example, I was approached by somebody, I can't remember what they wanted to sell me, but for some reason they benchmarked my inbound response. So they, they came inbound to our company. They called us, they submitted forms on our websites they, you know, they debated basically all of our different inbound channels. And then they proactively sent me a report with what, what our inbound response looked like. So mm-hmm. I thought that was so incredibly powerful that, that we've actually adopted that as one of our strategies. And we don't do it all the time because it's time consuming and, and, yeah. and can be complex. But again, mm-hmm. in that ABM strategy for, for a, a, a higher team. It's the most engaged, the, well, the one with the higher propensity to buy. Yes, so exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 
Great. So what are some of the top must-haves for you in a B2B sales strategy? I mean, I, I think of strategy with a, with a lot of components. I mean, there's, there's obviously the obvious stuff about whatever territory you strategy you use, whether that's account-based or geog- geographic or whatever. Obviously, compensation matters. Hiring matters tremendously. I think the one, maybe if we get at a more granular and more practical thing, I think it's rigor and discipline around the application of a true end-to-end sales process, or at least a sales process that takes you from opportunity creation through to, you know, let's say handoff to the customer success team. And double-clicking on that, one of my favorite best practices is to make sure that you have, it's often referred to a map as a map or a mutual, mutually agreed upon plan or sometimes just mutual plan MP. And the idea there is you have mapped out what your sales steps, your sales process looks like in terms of all the interactions that you and the prospect will have all the way through signing the deal. And as I said, handing off to customer success. So having that codified and then actually sharing that with prospects and having them see as you march through your process, what steps you're at, I think that's a super critical thing to, to having a, an effective sales strategy. Great. So what MarTech and sales tech products and why would you see gain more attention this year? I mean, of the new things, I think it probably comes back to that one I mentioned before, which is tools that help you figure out what the best next action is for salespeople, right? I mean, there's there are the, the good marketing automation platforms that determine best next action in a nurturing campaign, for example, and the Eloquas and Marketos and Salesforce solutions for that are typical tools for that. But I think, as I said, those are bleeding over into the sales world where companies can tell their first line managers what to do. So I think those are pretty killer tools. I think the conversation intelligence tools also, where you can, you know, would that automatically record salespeople so that their managers can go back and coach or they can share snippets out with the prospects. Those obviously continue to gain momentum. And selfishly, I suppose, transparently, we definitely see the category that we're in, the sales engagement category, continuing to grow extremely rapidly. Because, right, the alternative is that you're sent, you know, you're you're trying to keep track of how do you, how are you going to execute a multi-touch, multi-channel campaign and keep that all in your head or on a Google Doc or whatever? Why not just leverage mm-hmm. a tool that that helps you do that? That does it. Yeah. So I think, uh, Jeremy, you took the time to share some very interesting insights for our audience. Are there any key takeaways you'd like to share before we wrap up for the day? I mean, maybe this is for the sales leaders to some extent, but it's probably also for the salespeople. You know, I've been working for 25 years. The epiphanies still come, but they don't come as fast as they used to. But I'm always, I'm a learning individual. And I had a big epiphany about two weeks ago. It had to do with making sure that sales pipeline is healthy and making sure that people are performing where I'm going with this is that I have tried probably every comp plan imaginable. I've I've been a part of or or changed into every kind of sales org structure configuration imaginable, on and on. And I realized by talking to some some folks, some peers in the industry, that like the one thing that differentiates the top performing managers and leaders is a thing that is really uncomfortable for sales leaders to do, which is to hold people accountable to daily activity. It was an epiphany for me because it's something that I never wanted anyone to do that to me, you know, but I never thought that they had to. And I think that's the thing is that a lot of people who are strong enough to get promoted into management roles and leadership roles are people who didn't necessarily need to be held accountable 
to daily activity, but then they want to treat others as they were treated, which, which seems like a reasonable thing to do. But, you know, my observation is if you're, you know, if you're managing tens or hundreds of, of sales professionals, you can't just trust that everyone's going to do their activity every day. So it's so basic, but as a manager, you, you really only have two levers to pull. Well, I guess you have a few others with hiring and so on. But once you've got your team, you can either drive activity volume or you can drive activity effectiveness. And, you know, you're going to do both, but activity effectiveness is pointless if the volume isn't there. So that's, I guess, my beyond the stuff we already talked about. That's kind of my biggest incremental piece of advice. That's very relevant, especially uh, with a growing company and expanding teams. I think this is very interesting, this point. So thank you for sharing that. We hope you have an amazing day. 